Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel all safely from home. Name's Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director is with us. Claire, great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. Yes, and uh, as always, Robert Craig, our executive director, is with us. Robert. Good day, everyone. Me personally, it's good to be back. I was gone last week uh, racing uh, motorcycles with my son and uh, have come back to one of the uh, more crazy, uh, strange weeks here uh, in our country. And we're going to dive right in. Um, as of this morning, Donald Trump has called for a delay in the 2020 election due to, uh, in his words, supposedly increased postal voting uh, that could lead to fraud or inaccurate results. Uh, this in spite of himself voting absentee and many other people in this administration. Uh, and this is also happening the week and as we speak that basically all of, of you know, the $600 a week, the federal uh, COVID relief is going to run out, uh, and it does not appear that it's going to be extended. Uh, there's still a lot of disagreement, so we're going to talk about that. And we have the federal agents are headed to Milwaukee. Trump has sent in federal agents. Um, so strange times. We did have a victory last week, and we will talk uh, a little bit about the utility moratorium being extended after a lot of really good organizing around the state, including by Northside Rising here in Milwaukee. We'll also be joined at the end of the, the last uh, couple segments by a couple of our uh, candidates that are running for state assembly uh, that we have endorsed in primary election. That is uh, Christina Shelton and Josephine James. They will join us later, but let's dive in. The big news of the morning is uh, Trump calling for a delay in the 2020 election. I got to say, I'm not shocked. I actually am mostly surprised it came this early. Um, and I'm just going to kick it straight to the panel to get their immediate response and hear what they have to say. Um, Robert, would you like to go first? So, Matt, as to President Trump announcing on Twitter that he wants to delay the election, it needs to be understood that he has no such authority, <laughs> that he would have to pass it through Congress. And I don't even think William Barr can figure out a rationale to do it by executive action, uh, from what I understand. And then furthermore, we need to be careful that this is just his usual way of getting attention. He did this the morning. That we learned that we had a, 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 a 33% reduction in uh, the national wealth and gross domestic product. And that included all of the support payments that are being made that have just been cut off with no resumption in sight because of Trump and the Republicans. So it and it also serves its purpose because he's trying to trash the elections and probably does hope to challenge them or stay in office illegally if if they're close because he because of this lie he tells over and over again that mail ballots are insecure. Claire, your thoughts. My first thought was the same as Robert's first thought, which is he he doesn't really have the power to do that. Um you know, the power to run elections largely, you know, sits within the state. So it would have to be something um, that I can't even imagine how challenging that process would be. It would be to actually cancel um, an 
national election. Um, I think the greater concern will be how long this posturing continues and um, what happens when he loses um, and how much does he posture about actually leaving the White House after that happens. So, um, but I agree with you that I'm concerned. I, I was surprised that this um, that this call came in July. I thought this was something he would trot out in um, like September. Um, so to that end, Claire, t- uh, your thoughts on why now? And like, is this like, what do you see as the strategic end game here? Yeah, I think he, I mean, he clearly is a man with very little impulse control. Um, and so I'm guessing is that he's just, you know, becoming hyper-focused on uh, the fact that, you know, polls are not looking good for him, that he's getting a lot of negative attention right now, that the Republicans in the Senate, um, that was sort of his firewall, his stronghold, are, are falling apart and fracturing right now. Um, I, I'm guessing that he is just sort of in a, in a downward um, emotional spiral. And, um, and I also think that, um, that this he could think that doing something like this would be an effective dog whistle because his, you know, he said this announcement, it wasn't like he put out an executive order or like an official statement, you know, he, he did this over Twitter. Um, and we know Twitter is how he creates dog whistles for his uh, most fervent supporters and um, creates sort of buzz in, in communities that can become a sort of like, a, you know, bigger movements. And to that, if, if that is the goal, I guess it does make sense to try to start that buzz and that conversation earlier rather than later. Robert, I want to give you the final response to the same idea. Like, what's your sense on the end game? This is, you know, political stunt. Uh, where do you think this goes? And then I want to actually go back and dive into Claire's and talk more about what's happening at the federal level in terms of COVID extension, uh, which definitely is part of the dynamic here. Robert? Just remember that this is a man whose only substantive accomplishment in life is being a reality TV show star and being very good at manipulating the media uh, in a a P.T. Barnum sort of way, and then also in in obviously manipulating a large audience that is loyal to him, and he's worried about this news cycle. He doesn't have a broad plan for November. He just is, is figuring it out. Look, he also has doubled down on some sort of weird early 1970s strategy. He tweeted this week that uh, he was going to protect the suburbs, that they were threatened by low-income housing. Now, this is a man who he and his father were sued by the federal government for refusing to rent to African-Americans and and were never really held accountable, uh, though there was a settlement, and who literally thinks it's 1973, as I've heard some analysts say, and that he's going to scare all the suburbanites who he knows are going against him based on polling uh, with the specter of, you know, black and brown people. So it's even it's probably uh, too polite to call it a dog whistle because it's so loud. So, Claire, I want to turn this uh, conversation back to this the broader environment, political environment this is happening in. And Robert, you rightly bring up the point that he's trying to get through this week because this is a rough week. But you know what? It's actually a rough horrendous week for America. Uh, We basically found out, right, as Robert mentioned earlier, that in the second quarter that our economy cratered about a third. And that is significant, is uh, historic in our lifetime. And uh, this week, uh, all these benefits are about to run out. $600 a week, a lot of rent, uh, renter protections, and a lot of states' uh, power moratoriums. We'll talk more about that here in Wisconsin. But uh, Claire, at the federal level, and you brought this up, uh, the Democrats uh, were pushing 
CARES Act, and this does not appear to be happening, and we're going to likely get uh, something out of uh, what the GOP will uh, provide us. Claire, let's complete our conversation on this uh, sort of gridlock, I would say, uh, in, at the federal level to provide us uh, real relief. Yeah, I'm actually going to be a little bit more hopeful than than you presented it. Um, so it's true. <laughs> it's true that uh, the Senate Republicans, led by Mitch McConnell, put out the Heals Act, um, which uh, I mean, I I the one thing that I'm loving about these dueling bills is that we also have dueling hyperbolic titles and acronyms. That there's clearly some like communications director sitting in the back office somewhere being like, how can I make this acronym be better than the HEROES Act? So the HEALS Act, um, I will, the only thing I, in the acronym I'll, I'll point out that I think is relevant is that the L in HEALS Act, the Senate Republicans bill stands for liability protection um, because a big part of this bill um, that Republicans are really excited about is this idea that um, we should have legal protections for businesses so that employer employees and people who uh, visit the business can't sue the business if they contract COVID-19 uh, from, from the business. So that's the liability protection, which um, is, is clearly just designed at propping up um, industries like the meatpacking industry that have been uh, hot spots for transmitting this disease. So that's such an important concept to them that it made it into the, the flipping acronym of the bill. Um, but here's why I'm a little bit more hopeful. It is true that this is a $1 billion package as uh, or a trillion dollar package as compared to the uh, Democrats uh, $3 billion or $3 trillion package. Um, but there is not even agreement amongst Republicans in the Senate that this is the way that they want to go. There is a sizable sort of like Tea Party ultra conservative component of the Republican caucus in the Senate that is not on board with this package. So all of the analysis that I've read and heard from national partners, as well as national media sources, says that if it were to be up for a vote right now, the HEALS Act on its own probably wouldn't even pass the Senate, even though it's the Republican Senate's um, like own bill. Um, and so they need Democrats to pass something, which means that they are going to have to probably move closer to the HEROES Act to the Democrats bill. So I think that um, Democrats are actually in a position of strength for trying to bolster um, through the negotiation process. Well, and we're going to get Robert's response when we get back. We got to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. You're talking about situation at the federal level. Uh, there are ongoing discussions as we record around how they are going to continue uh, COVID relief for American families and for the economy uh, since the current package runs out. Uh, and Claire gave us her optimistic vision that it looks like because there's so many right-wingers that are abandoning that they're going to have to work with the Democrats and that this actually might become a better or decent package than uh, what currently is being talked about. Um, Robert, your thoughts? Uh, in a gentlemanly way, point out a potential flaw in Claire's very logical analysis and is the logic. That is to say, Claire's assumption is that Republicans will understand they have to do some kind of relief and therefore since the only way to pass anything is with Democrats, 
that they will work with Democrats, which means a much more progressive bill than the one that's already been introduced in the Heals Act. They've got to meet them a lot, uh, at least halfway, probably further. And uh, it, my question is, have they, do they really have that strategy? I mean, logic would dictate that you handle the pandemic in a real way using a full federal response, which the country would have would have would have supported, because that would help with the economy and make him look like an emergency president and set him up potentially for reelection. But he does not still does not get that logic. And I'm not sure they get the logic on cutting off the relief. Listening to Senator Lankford from Oklahoma this morning on NPR these are such hard-bitten conservatives. That's why, as Claire points out, you have a lot of folks, not Langford, because he's more part of the leadership team, but a lot of these folks who are willing couldn't even, won't even do the Heels Act, right? But with Trump, he's surrounded by right-wingers of this malignant type, the modern Republican conservative, which is not like the conservatism of 30 years ago or anything like it at all, but he also doesn't think like we do. And so I'm not sure, since he won't accept the logic of the pandemic— why do we think he'll kill kill us? He'll, uh, you know, t- uh, assume the logic of the economic situation where any Republican or Democratic president would do massive relief right now. Period. Even Herbert Hoover. Claire, I want to give you an opportunity to quickly respond before we then turn and look at what's happening or not happening here in the state. I mean, I concede Robert's point on general in general about the party, right? I think my argument is that I think there is a a um, you know it might be a smaller contingent of the Republican Party, but I think Mitch McConnell is among that, who realizes that they are incredibly vulnerable right now because they haven't done anything. And those are folks who might be up for re-election and have challenges, um, strong challenges, well-funded challenges in their home states. And um, these are often states that are redder states that are experiencing huge spikes in cases. Um, and folks that continue to be unemployed as economies have to start shutting back down because of those huge spikes. So I, I am hopeful that there might be a smaller, and I'm not saying even half, but there might be a sizable contingent of folks, including some Senate leaders, who are, who are motivated to do something. Um, and I also think that they are getting a lot of negative pressure for the fact that the Democrats had their proposal out in May, and they're not introducing their proposal until the very last week of July. And so the longer they delay, the worse they look, and the greater position of strength that Democrats are in. Robert? Yeah, I I really profoundly hope Claire is right, because people are hurting. I'll point out that McConnell's so unworkable, they're trying to work with the Trump team. And McConnell says the bottom line is liability, blanket protection for corporations, his real puppet masters. Remember, he's not really calling the tunes. His funders are. That's why I made the point about liability. So with that, I do want to focus some attention here on the state. And, you know, as bad or disturbing or concerning as what's happening at the federal level with this money running out, desperate, like for for people that are in incredibly desperate situations, the state legislature's done nothing since they originally met. It's been, I think, over 100 days they haven't even met. And we're in the middle of a crisis. We're a red state now in terms of uh, our, our COVID cases. And uh, our economy is struggling. We're seeing businesses now that are reclosing uh, because of uh, the numbers. And our state legislature is completely AWOL on this. And, and you know, our governor continues to, you know, basically be fairly hamstrung by the Supreme Court decision and has chosen to essentially articulate that and try to say it's the 
the GOP's fault, but here we are, uh, Claire. This is um, this is not good. A good look. And by the way, there were a number of governors, Republican and Democratic former governors, who uh, spoke out this week, saying that it's appalling that there's been a failure of leadership in this absolutely critical. Failure of leadership is absolutely right. And uh, I know I kind of went on a riff on this last week, so I, I won't repeat exactly what I said. But um, but I really believe that history is going to look poorly upon our um, state elected leaders who abandoned the entire state and just offered up uh, you know, an entire population of people to this virus because it was easier than coming in and having to do their job and actually um, think critically about what it would take to get this pandemic under control or make decisions about funding things like, you know, Robert talks a lot about contract tracing, for example, um, you know, but that costs money and then that might be opposed to their sort of very narrow ideological uh, view. So um, I think it is, well past the time at which we should be having a um, sort of like societal community conversation about calling out these legislators and and really shaming them for abandoning us. Well, this predates it, 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 the pandemic is in many ways surfacing problems that have been along. Modern conservatives don't think that they actually are responsible for solving the people's problems. Uh, and so they, they didn't deal with most of the problems actual people have during this session or previous sessions, but it's just stunning. Uh, it's not just Donald Trump. This proves that this, there's something wrong with modern conservatism. Okay. And there are a few people who jump ship. You see them running ads against Trump, but they're kind of a minority of conservative elites. For the most part, these folks lack empathy and don't care. It's hard to see it any other way. And they've rigged the election map, so they think they're completely safe, and they actually think they can do this. The only thing they do care about is their, their corporate puppet masters. And so you'll notice that corporations are still being bailed out by the Fed, big corporations. But we're about to cut average people out. Uh, we have 30 million people, according to a, the latest census number, who don't have enough food right now. What do you think that's going to be? when we cut off the aid, which we're just about to do uh, for the unemployed. And what do you think the GDP is going to look like, since that's a lot of what was propping up the GDP? And with the state, just no responsibility whatsoever. And then Governor Evers just needs to be bolder. I think he has all the, the best intentions, but he really uh, maybe is waiting for August 1st when uh, the Supreme Court uh, gains a seat in the direction of, of reason and law. Uh, but he needs to do a mask order and many other things and just keep showing the public what leadership means and what we should actually be doing. Yeah, I just I want to underscore this. I did. You know, I wasn't there uh, on the show last week, so I, you may have talked about this, but I just think this is absolutely appalling. I, I cannot believe that the legislature has not been in session to try to address a number of things. And, and, and it's it, it, in this time. And as we mentioned and started the show talking about. The, the economic numbers, I mean, the cratering of the economy and the complete lack of leadership here. And I do think Governor Evers needs to like, I'm sorry that the Supreme Court may make bad rulings, but we need leadership and there needs to be at least showing the way about what we, what legislation ought to be considered. What do we need that could be blueprints? And I mean, he did that with his uh, budget when he went on that tour and started to lay out what his vision is. We need that right now about what his vision is to like uh, rise to the challenge of what's happening uh, with this economy right now. And the numbers that came out today are an absolute clarion call 
uh, for everyone at all levels of government to consider like what are we doing uh, to, to beat the situation. I, before we go to break, Robert, I wanted to give you an opportunity to at least briefly mention uh, the huge victory around the moratorium last week. Yeah, I'll do the victory rather than what everyone else to read about the Trump agents coming to Cleveland, Detroit, and Ohio. I mean, Cleveland and Detroit, of course, three the minority cities in majority white battleground states that he won last time. Imagine that. It's, you know, the, the abuse of federal government for politics. But we got one victory. Progressives need victories. There was a victory where the uh, moratorium against cutting off people's utilities was extended to October. The uh, Public Service Commission reversed uh, its course on that. There were a lot of people involved in pushing for this, mayors, number of mayors across the state. Our new organizing co-op, not yet officially launched, but building uh, Northside Rising, an African-American-centered organizing co-op on the north side of Milwaukee, took a leadership role in this and got some of the credit in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel article. And it's really excited our organizers and uh, our, 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 our new base that is developing. And so it's ex important people to know that if you really call attention to something, you can get incremental victories. Now, of course, people's bills keep building up and the moratorium is going to have expire again and we'll have another crisis because this won't be over by October. But just getting something and then having nothing to organize for is very motivating. And the Sunrise Movement also was very involved here, was super helpful. With that, we are going to have to take a break. And when we come back from this break, we are going to talk to hopefully a new, exciting, potential new state legislator next year who will help actually bring a new vision and uh, some bold leadership. And that is uh, Christina Shelton. Uh, in a primary election, August 11th, we got to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back. So we are really fortunate to have a special guest with us, and that is uh, Christina Shelton. Christina is running for the uh, State Assembly of the Green Bay Area in the 90th. And Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to be here. So tell our listeners, I, I'm sure all of our listeners in the Green Bay area are well plugged in, but we just think your race is super important and we think the world of you in terms of the kind of progressive vision you have. Tell our listeners more about you, who you are, and uh, your race and why it's so important. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, this race is ex extremely uh, energized by the work and the, the not just the grassroots local work that we're doing, but really building a broad democratic coalition of bold progressive values and and a big vision for not just you know locally again, but the state. Um, I currently serve as the vice president on the Green Bay School Board. I'm a teacher by trade. I taught uh, health and physical education at both the K-12 and higher education levels. And, you know, I think being a teacher, you, you know how to talk to people, you know how to talk to everyday folks, uh, you know how to rally around ideas and disagree with people. And, you know, I bring that, that you know, area of expertise with me um, and that vision with me, you know, that educator background. And, you know, what we're doing up here, we have, you know, 15 organizational endorsements right now, Planned Parenthood, AFL-CIO, AFP, SEIU, Wisconsin Conservation Voters, really every organization that you can, you can pick up around every key issue. And, you know, what, what we're talking about up here are, are some pretty big ideas. Um, you know, we are, we're talking about Medicaid expansion, Badger Care Public Options, 
fully funded uh, public education. Uh, Lately, we've been talking about, you know, green jobs and, and is it possible to do a state level job guarantee that puts people to work building green infrastructure. So we're really wishing and wanting to push the envelope up here. And I think it's resonating with people. People are tired of the status quo and they're looking for big, bold ideas that are really going to solve some of their pressing issues that they're feeling on the daily. Hey, Christina, um, thank you so much for um, coming on the, the, the podcast and the show to talk to us. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know you through talking about your uh, healthcare platform and healthcare work, which is sort of my area, area of expertise here at Citizen Action. So um, I know you mentioned batch care expansion and batch care public option are big parts of your platform. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of what you're seeing on the ground in your district around people's healthcare needs and why you support those issues. Yeah, thanks, Claire. You know, I have a background in um, health, community health education um, and public health. And, you know, what we're seeing is the way that public health and public health, um, you know, expertise and, and professional backgrounds can, is really driving where we're going next in terms of, you know, healthcare and prevention, not just for COVID, but with, within, you know, across all uh, diseases and infections and, and really, you know, uh, public health issues that cross cut all of us. So I, again, I think that background really helps me to understand the issues at hand. Um, you know, what people are asking for is nothing radical. They are asking for accessible, affordable healthcare that they can use when they need it and access when they need it um, that will ensure that they are healthy and, uh, and, and, and resilient over the course of their lifetime. Um, it has been extremely frustrating to continue the conversation of you know, how we link people's insurance to their places of employment. You know, we, we had the data that came out uh, maybe about a month ago that showed, showed you know, uh, I think it was over uh, 60,000, Claire, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was 60,000 uh, newly unemployed Wisconsinites because they, they lost their employment um, due to COVID-19. And so what we're showing here is that there is so much work to be done and that it will not only benefit those who don't have insurance, but it will benefit all of us. Because when we have insurance across the board, um, it will pay off in the end through those preventative measures. So, Christina, this is really the election is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, largely in the primary. This is one of the districts that was uh, that, uh, pack and crack, where this is more democratic than the surrounding districts. Uh, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I think we're taking, you know, we take the, the campaign in increments, right? We don't take anything for granted. We've no, been I got working, working extremely hard for the August 11th primary. Um, and once we get through that, we'll, we'll turn our attention to the general. Um, but to your point, Robert, I, you know, this is a gerrymandered district. It's gerrymandered blue. Um, I've been hearing from a lot of voters up here who, quite frankly, there's a lot of voter apathy up, up here. And they've said to me, you know, quite frankly, who does it matter? It's blue no matter who, you know, all Democrats are the same. And so what we've been trying to do is to say not all Democrats are the same. We have different opinions and a different vision and different ways that we approach the work. Uh, so we're going to keep that message going. And, and once we get through the, uh, the primary, we'll turn that attention to the November general. Since I love your answer. So it seems to me that Overall, the Democratic caucus in the assembly has not been as progressive as mainline Democrats. 
are nationally now or not as progressive as Joe Biden is now that he has adopted a great deal of the progressive agenda through the task force process and into the platform. And he's rolling it out, a lot of it out as his own. So uh, do you agree that we need to be bolder in the state assembly, that the Democrats need to be bolder? Absolutely. Like, I, I think the work that the assembly and, the, and you know, at the party level, at the state level, the work that we've done is commendable. And I think we've got to push forward. We don't have time anymore to talk about, you know, and, and push for, you know, mediocre status quo, uh, middle ground uh, solutions. Um, we're out of time, quite frankly. We are simply at in almost every issue. And, um, you know, we've seen it nationally with the party, you know, the the Medicare, um, you know, division that's happening within the party. Uh, I support Medicare for all. That has been something I've talked about uh, courageously for the past four or five years. Um, I'd love to see that happen at the federal level. In the meantime, the state of Wisconsin absolutely needs to expand Medicaid and Badger Care to start to provide that coverage. So, you know, this campaign for us is about fighting for the future of the Democratic Party. And I think it's, it's important when we can have these types of courageous policy conversations. You know, the way that you overcome a bad idea is with a better idea. You don't overcome a bad idea by not talking about it at all. And so, you know, I may not have the best idea, but, you know, we're, we've got to have the conversation and get it going. And I think we can't be afraid of, of, you know, saying it can't be done. You know, in times of crisis, Americans and Wisconsinites have always up in the face of, um, of difficult times and, and managed to move forward in a way that puts people over corporate pr profit and selfish interest. And I'm calling on my fellow Wisconsinites to continue to do that, because I think when we do that, we're going to be uh, we're going to be stronger together. And that's how we build a, br a brighter Green Bay and Wisconsin. You know, we've been talking on the show about just sort of our concern that there's really been a lack of any at the legislative level here in Wisconsin, and just seems to be sort of gridlock where there's nothing moving uh, in spite of this absolute pandemic we're in. Could I get your thoughts just on that and how you as a new leader think you could come in and at least maybe provide a, a perspective, maybe a different perspective or something that might help uh, change the dynamic or at least, at least uh, your ideas as to how do we do more in this time of great need? Yeah, I think that's a million dollar question, Matt. Um, you know, I, I was reading the article I think you guys were talking about earlier today in this session about, you know, the the call for leadership, um, the call for bold leadership. And, you know, some people are saying that there's a vacuum of leadership in, in Madison and around the state. And, you know, clearly there is, you know, one party that is not even willing to consider coming to the table to to work together. Um, and we've got to hold their feet to the fire. But at the end of the day, I can't force and we can't force the Republicans to do, uh, quite frankly, anything. As much as I'd like to force them to come to the table with us, I can't. But what we can do is we can organize in our communities and our neighborhoods with our families and our friends to start to put pressure on, to show up, to put pressure on, to make calls, to show up in, in, in you know, demonstrations. I know we're facing COVID, but Using masks, we found it to be, you know, pretty safe in terms of, you know, showing up for large, uh, you know, gatherings. I, I think that we've got to think about this as an opportunity to create a social movement in which we re-inspire each other, that government is there to not only solve our biggest issues, but that it can solve our biggest issues. And so, you know, that's sort of a long-term game, game that we have to, we have to play um, but, you know, I think through community organizing, we can put pressure on those levers that need to be pushed and pulled for change. 
Um, but yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. And you know, once I'm once I'm elected, I'm excited to get to work on that. Well, that was inspiring, and totally agree with you. And uh, the last question I have for you before you leave us is: How do folks get involved, help you out? And by the way, I assume. You could be helped anywhere from around the state if you have like phone banks or things like that, but also if you live in the area, let folks know how they could get involved in helping you before your huge primary election on August 11th. Yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Yep, we we have an amazing group of volunteers that are dedicating their time. And these are folks that are working full-time jobs that have little kids who a lot of which have never, uh, they, they might have never, you know, uh, volunteered in an assembly campaign before, but we are definitely looking for more people to get involved. My website, christinaforassembly.com has a volunteer sign up on, on that website. It's just under get involved. You can put your information in there. We have a volunteer coordinator that's uh, coordinating all of those signups. We've got virtual phone banks. Anyone can make those at any place in the safety of your home around the state. If people are local, we are doing some safe literature drops, no contact, just dropping the lit. Um, we are doing postcard writing uh, campaigns. We're texting folks. I think right now we've texted over 10,000 uh, voters in the 90th Assembly District, and we've got a big push in the next 10 days. So I would love for people who are interested. Of course, donations are always uh, welcomed, and we get excited about that too. You know, money helps us to reach more voters. And uh, anything people can give is, is helpful. Well, folks, we'll put links to both volunteer and donation on the page on our website. But, Christina, we want to thank you uh, for joining us. But mostly we want to thank you for leading and stepping up to the challenge in a challenging time and running for office. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for everything that you all do, too, and have a great rest of your day. All right, great. And with that, we have got to take a break here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are fortunate to have our second guest, who is another state assembly candidate, is Josephine James. Uh, Josephine, thanks so much for joining us today at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're thrilled. Uh, we've uh, endorsed you in this uh, race. It's in western Wisconsin. It'd be the rural areas around, uh, I guess you could say, uh, the La Crosse uh, Sparta area. It is the 96th Assembly District. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself uh, and why you're running for office? I am the youngest individual running for a state office in the state of Wisconsin. Last year, or last election cycle, I was involved with Paul Burr's campaign for the same race, and I was incredibly frustrated by the amount of dark money and the gerrymandering, how that, how that contributed to his defeat. And I, I was wondering who would be the next person to run as a Democrat in this district, and who would be someone I could get behind 100%. And then I thought, why, why not me? Why did my age have to disqualify me from running? And I spent months talking with community leaders, individuals about the possibility of, of my candidacy. And then I announced last October. And, you know, here we are and fighting um, to help our communities emerge from, from COVID successfully. I'm really passionate about keeping people in our rural communities and attracting future generations to return home if they leave for 
for college. And that involves almost everything. You know, we need we need broadband in our rural communities and we need to address the housing issues and the lack of afford- of quality daycare. Make sure our water is, is clean for our health and our, our tourism and sportsman industry. Um, help our farmers and our small business owners. And I'm excited to not only represent my community, you know, the community that raised me, but but my generation as well. Josephine, uh, before Claire asks the first question, could you just tell us a little bit more uh, about your background? You, you, you grew up on a dairy farm and, you know, you actually already have a significant amount of leadership at, at such a early age. Just give our listeners a little bit more about your background. I want to clarify, I actually didn't grow up on a, on a dairy farm. Um, when my dad was in the military, and when we moved back to the area after his retirement, we bought a, our own farm about a mile away from my, my mom's family farm or my uncle farms, and he had um, beef. But this summer, he didn't sell his cows because of, of meat prices. So what we did is we spent all spring fencing our land so that he could put his cows, you know, rotational grazing. And, um, yeah, you know, that, that farm life, it teaches you a lot of values, you know, dedication, commitment, you know, a strong work ethic. Um, I, I always like to say that, you know, the American values, those are, those are rural values. That's where they'll stem from. And, and, you know, rural America is America. And, you know, growing up in the, in this community, a small community, you know, I, I am very open about my faith. I grew up in the church and that church, you know, those individuals raised me and, and taught me, you know, the importance of service, of, you know, helping your community. And I think that being raised in this community, I have a firm grasp of, of the different individuals in the district. And I feel I can best represent them in Madison. That is so beautifully stated. Um, I, I just love, I can hear the passion and love you like just through emanating through your voice that you have for your community it's just it's so incredibly inspiring so thank you for sharing that with us i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what the challenges are that you're seeing in your community especially um, this being a rural and sort of small town um, district that, that you think are being unmet by the legislature right now. Um, and, you know, my, my area of interest tends to be healthcare. So if you want to talk about healthcare, awesome. But if there's something else on the top of your mind, feel free to mention that as well. Yeah, specifically with healthcare, one of the biggest struggles is a lot of our local services are struggling, our nursing homes, our clinics, our hospitals, because, you know, corporate greed is quick to consolidate and eliminate. And we really have to work hard to, to safeguard the, not only the services, but these jobs in the area. Um, I work part-time at a local nursing home, and I see how underfunded they are, um, specifically with the Medicaid reimbursement. You know, Wisconsin ranks 49th in Medicaid reimbursement, and that's unacceptable. Um, at the nursing home that I work at, two-thirds of the residents are on Medicaid. They're losing $80 per day per resident that's on Medicaid. And um, we need to really work to ensure that, you know, people don't have to travel hours to visit their grandma or to get the, you know, life-saving services that they need. So that's a big issue in, in my rural district. I think in the state, you know, we need to accept our, our Medicaid expansion dollars. The federal, you know, we paid those taxes. And now that we're not accepting the money, that's insane. 
Um, so that's, you know, the number one thing I'd be pushing for in Madison is to accept those dollars. Um, and then pushing for a public option for Badger Care is, is another part of my health care platform. So this is uh, Robert. Uh, great answers. Um, you talked about resources and fighting the resources and even our irrational decision to turn down resources that are paid for by our federal taxes. It seems to me there's a lot to uh, talk about the urban-rural divide, um, about Catherine Kramer's book, which was focused on Wisconsin, that uh, some rural areas that the representatives actually are against having all the resources that are needed to, re- to revitalize their own communities, that rural areas need investment as much as urban areas do. And in the New Deal, we were able to do both and and built a tremendous amount of rural prosperity. I mean, we were uh, the agriculture and uh, was in huge trouble in the uh, in the 1920s and the early part of the Great Depression. And I wonder what your thoughts are as uh, as someone who grew up there and knows the people. What is possible about actually showing people that actually being against government and against invest uh, using the, the power of state government to invest in all communities, but the, especially the hard press, which is our rural areas and our urban areas, is not in their interest. It's actually hurting them. And that the idea that this somehow getting back at Milwaukee or Madison helps Vernon County is just not the case. I wonder if you think that there is a growing sense that uh, that there needs to be a new direction for rural America coming from voters in your, in your area. I often say that, um, you know, part of the reason I want to get down to Madison is because they often forget our rural communities. You know, they focus a lot on the Milwaukee's, the Green Bay's, the Madison. But we need to be focusing on the Reeds towns and the Gaze Mills and the Coon Valley, these, li- these little towns. Um, because, like I say, rural America is America. You know, you don't find any harder working individuals than, you know, the farm kids that I went to school with. You know, I firmly believe that the, that the hardworking youth raised in, in the Midwest are key to, to my generation um, helping fix our country. And in my district, I think um, the biggest thing is, is when, when it directly affects someone, when an issue directly affects them, is when they start to come around. And we're seeing that right now with, with healthcare, specifically because of, of COVID. And people are starting to understand why we might start, um, we, we have to sort of lean towards, you know, Medicare for all, but but our current legislator, sure, it's impossible to pass such a thing, which is why we need to push for, you know, public option for badger care and taking, you know, small steps in the right direction. I think that um, that whole messaging of, you know, it's high time our rural communities are discussed about in, in, in Madison really resonates with folks around here. They feel forgotten. And, you know, part of my campaign is telling them, you know, I will fight for you. And I think that's important. Um, our current legislator He's a great guy, but and he's he's a, he's a great community member. He's been involved in various organizations, but he's not that guy in Madison. He's just another vote for the GOP machine, and and informing people about that and telling them that I promise to be, you know, strong, independent leadership. You know, no strings attached. I'm not accepting PAC money. I'm planning on going down there and just fighting for our real community. Josephine, we really appreciate you stepping up and running for what is really, this is a seat we can win. We can win this seat with someone like yourself and other people supporting you. And to that end, Josephine, let our listeners know how they can get involved immediately. You have a primary 
um, how they can get involved and help you right away and help your campaign. Um, we are going to be having a phone bank, a phone bank next Thursday, a week from today. It's kind of like a final push before, before the the primary. You know, a great way as, as always is, is donating. Um, you can go to my website, Justine James for wi.com and there's a link to donate. The the number one thing that people can do, and it's the easiest thing, is go to my social media accounts and share. Share our content, even if you're not in the district. Your share boosts the posts, and it, it, it spreads the reach of those posts, and, and that's vital. Um, you know, previous I've spoken with, with previous candidates for the seat and, and campaign managers and such, and they're like, don't, don't focus on, on the social media. But they weren't prepared for COVID. You know, we can't go door to door. We can't have that face-to-face interaction. So, so social media has become such a vital part of, of our campaigning now. So on Facebook, you can find me. Josephine Janes for State Assembly on Instagram um, at Janes for WI. Um, and I just want to note that, that my name um, is spelt with an F, not a PH, because I'm Norwegian. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the Norwegian spelling of, of Josephine. Well, that's awesome. And we really appreciate you so much for running and joining us. But we have to wrap up this show and we'll have links to how you can get involved uh, and help Josephine Janes. Uh, Josephine, thank you so much. Thank you. With that, we have got to wrap up this show. We also want to thank our other guest, Christina Shelton. We'll see you all next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin.